Mr. President, can you unite the country? It's quite a moment, Jake. I have no problem with reaching out to Republicans. I would prefer to do it that way. But if we hear very early on that Republicans do not want to act in a way that meets the needs of working people in this country or the middle class, sorry, we're going to do it alone. Uh, The truth of the matter uh, is that Republicans use budget reconciliation over the years to provide massive tax breaks to the rich, to try to repeal the Affordable Care Act. We're going to use it to protect working families. All right. How's everybody doing today? America, the good guys are back. The Avengers have taken back the White House, and we can all sit down and play Pictionary with Uncle Joe, maybe take a swig later with Auntie Kamala. (laughs) My name is David Griscom. You're listening to Left Reckoning, and I'm joined today by co-host, good friend and comrade, Matt Leck. How's it going, brother? It's going well, David. Good to be with you. What a, what a funny day yesterday. What a day of really feeling like you were invited to a party that you really just didn't want to be at. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Bernie Bernie crushing it day one. Uh, talk about a day one agenda. <laughs> um, getting in there with the memes. Um, complete everything about the image to the, like, having to mail something after, you know, you stop by Joe's. All right, Joe, I'll go to your graduation or whatever it is. Um, clap for you in my mittens. Uh, yeah, In his what, recycled mittens. Yeah. Um, wonderful. And uh, I, I'm going to fade out on our music. Um, we're uh, introducing the new music we've had specially commissioned for Left Reckoning here. That was uh, by my pal uh, from Minnesota, Christoph Brun. Uh, he's a great musician. Uh, I sh- I'll have his full plugs when we uh, start um that, well when i get my sh- my shit together i guess frankly um but i'll put some of his uh um work in a uh, links um in the description but uh, he's made a few themes for us that one i mean he's just an amazing guitar player mm-hmm. that's him ripping that uh, he can do all sorts of different styles and we had him do that country one for us there and uh there's be a few others we introduced so uh, thanks chris for that. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. I mean, the tracks are all good. There's a couple of them that are just like standalone songs too, which I've really been, I've been jamming to myself. Yeah. It, I mean, I'm partial to his acoustic stuff, but uh, we have some rock and stuff. We've got all sorts of different, I mean, that's what Left Reckoning is for. You know, mm-hmm. we're throwing all sorts of different looks at you um, because we're versatile um, and, you know, that's what we can do. Hell yeah. Yeah, we're moving around. Well, today we got a, we got a lot going on. Um, we're going to start off talking about, you know, what happened yesterday. We sort of have to contractually. Um, but after that, we're going to take a really deep dive uh, with a friend and comrade, teacher of this show and uh, TMBS as well, Milton, Al- Milton Alamotti. Um, we're going to talk about the elections in Uganda, um, the house arrest of Bobby Wine and the kind of regional um, fallout from from those events as well as sort of his takes on what's been happening on the united states so definitely stay tuned for that Um, we'll also be talking about farmers new landlords Uh, later on the show we're going to talk about the proper way to show up and support strikers some more uh update on the the fight for union and amazon and in the post game uh, we'll be hanging out uh going through that 1776 uh, project which boy it's something else. Uh, I really didn't expect it to be as rich 
I'll say, uh, as that, as well as some other uh, yeah. fun stuff going on. The Are you game. saying, David, that they didn't really, you know, go with the Adolf Reed critique and sort of elucidate <laughs> no, that? They definitely did. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, that would be hilarious. That'd be a great way to piss off the lives if if uh, Trump actually just hired Adolf Reed to write the uh, 1776 Commission. <laughs> yeah, didn't it's weird how that they never go that route. That critique is always kind of they're kind of deaf to that particular. No, I mean it's like this is like a legit like. Book, book report style um, reimagining of American history. It's a, it's a real treat, honestly. I thought that uh, those days were behind us in our post-truth, um, uh, post-modern age. But no, mm-hmm. they are, they're coming back strong here. Mm-hmm. But dude, talking about a post-modern event, uh, how, what are your first reactions to that inauguration yesterday? I mean, it was, it was really amazing uh, to see just the program of it, obviously with the capital city in complete lockdown um, and just the way that the Democrats were trying to spin that story, um, especially the fact that there were no people on the mall and instead were just a bunch of plastic flags. Um, it very much felt like end times kind of inauguration there. Well, you could have interpreted it that way. I think the way the CNN political analyst, what's his name, David Chalian, his <laughs> response, which, I mean, strikes to me as like uh, what a somebody who's microdosing LSD would say um, about the setup here. Let's just uh, play um, a little bit of this. Uh, to guy- yeah, I mean, that mm-hmm. ridiculous. Uh, oh, I think that's... Oh, let's get this. This is a real treat. Yeah. There's still some uh, tinkering going on with the inaugural address, but his aides are, are, have made really clear it's not like he's trying to ignore or paper over uh, either what happened at the Capitol two weeks ago or what we've been through uh, throughout four years of the Trump presidency. And the contrast on display tonight was so stark. I mean, those lights that are that are just shooting out from the Lincoln Memorial uh, along the reflecting pool, it, I look, it's like almost... Uh, extensions of Joe Biden's arms embracing <laughs> America. It was a moment where oh the God. new president came to town and sort of convened the country in this moment of remembrance, uh, outstretching his arms. And contrast that with that video you just saw of a disgraced president on his way out at his lowest point uh, in his presidency at the very end here uh, by himself uh, fighting for yeah i mean so so just for people who are who might not be familiar they didn't just bring in some guy off the street who was looking exceptionally chip, uh, chipper that's cnn's political director uh right there talking about uh joe biden of all people in the most fantastical just post reality way yeah i mean really like I mean, I do think the microdosing acid thing is the most pertinent because, like, I, it's a, his arms, eight hundred arms, it doesn't look like that. If you if, objectively, it looks like uh, you're la- like a landing um, strip uh, at night, like with all those lights. But I mean, Joe Biden, um, yeah, Joe Biden's arms reaching out, and really, what it is is. It's an uh, invitation to act like babies or to interpret mm-hmm. this like you're a, a child, um, right? Like, let's interpret, let's believe in bedtime stories. I mean, the YouTube uh, one doesn't have this. Sorry, I got to plug my uh, headphones in because they're oh, yeah. Sorry about that, folks. Um, uh, they'll have heard a notification. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, like, 
that's amazing. Like that's the lesson. That's the message we need everyone to get right now is that Joe Biden is giving you a, a, a sort of a light hug uh, with a whole bunch of fixtures around the Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's just it's something that we've been saying for a really long time, um, actually, particularly to people on on the left when we tell them that you need to be strategic. But it's such a reminder of the way that these pundits deal with politics for half of these pundits, like politics is just about the way that politicians make you feel. Right. Um, I mean, that's why you see Van Jones crying literally every broadcast now that Joe Biden is brought up. Um, but I mean, and that's why they detested Trump so much. Not so much what he did, but the fact that the vile, disgusting empire that we live in was led by a vile, disgusting reflection of that system. Mm -hmm. And they like uh, the kind of pomp and circumstance, the kind of BS uh, symbolism of somebody like Joe Biden, that they actually think that this is legitimate analysis, Um, you know, especially given what we've seen from Biden throughout his career, how disgusting uh, the Democratic Party was during the primaries against Bernie Sanders, against somebody who was just fighting to get Americans health care during a pandemic. It's just amazing how quickly all that dissipates uh, with all of those folks. Yeah. And the other, it's sorry to go on a rant, but like the other half of pundits are just like absolute psychos um, who are just want to scold people about how like they follow politics more than you. Who do I mean? I mean, it's like the nerds over, um, you know, at Vox, people like Matthew Iglesias, the folks who have been so fixated these past couple of weeks on defending Biden's walk back of two thousand dollar checks for people saying like, oh, he always meant fourteen hundred. They always meant fourteen hundred completely ignoring the fact that pretty much every average voter in Georgia who was just getting inundated with those ads uh, going into that election with literal image, imagery of $2,000 checks uh, next to Joe Biden's name, you know, completely ignoring all of that and just saying, oh, I get politics more because I'm psycho enough uh, to spend all my time reading about this and following up on it. Yeah, I mean, running cover. Um, <laughs> and I mean, that's why that's I mean, they'll get, you know, Vox and wherever. I mean, it's hard to fo- follow where a lot of these guys are now because they've moved on to their independent things, but they'll all get access to, you know, these people in a Biden administration. They, mm-hmm. they made a good point about a lot of like, um, he didn't name these people specifically, but we know he's talking about Matt Iglesias and Ezra Klein and like the the first um, round of like bloggers, wonk blog type people, and they're made now and they they don't have any kind of special expertise. Like mm-hmm. the work they've done is horrendous. Ezra Klein, famous at the Washington Post for getting played by people like Paul Ryan and Kent Conrad about the the sincerity of of Republicans about deficits and stuff like that, and uh, be, but just graduating upward because. Um, I mean, I know in Matt Iglesias' case, isn't his dad like a Harvard? Yeah, um, yeah, he's a yeah. writer. Right, so. Yeah. Oh, no, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a complete, it's, it's a complete, I mean, obviously, it's, it's all like spectacle and fantasy. Um, but I'm telling y'all, uh, for people who are watching this show or people who haven't had the, like, the unfortunate experience of spending much time with a lot of the folks who populate, especially to the Washington, D.C. media, um, no, these people actually are about as vapid as they appear. Uh, this is what they talk about uh, privately as well. They really are enamored. You know, I had, when I used to work at media, my old boss had a big ass picture of Joe Biden eating ice cream. I saw, so I used to work at a, at a air 
Arabic uh, newspaper publication in the United States. Um, and they just had their screensaver was a big ass picture of Joe Biden eating ice cream. And I always just found it just absolutely. And this is like, you know, 2014, 2015. Uh, I always just thought it was absolutely insane. <laughs> it's like you're a reporter, uh, not from a partisan uh you know, outlet at all. And you're just yeah. so enamored with just like BS, like the most like low level marketing schemes from somebody like Biden. It's like, oh, well, you know what Americans love is they like sunglasses and ice cream. What if I put those together? Right. And that that actually works on like the drooling horde of like DC pundits for the most part. It's right. quite the indictment. And we should say like educated people, like like the, the same type of people who were appealed to by like all the memes about Hillary with her phone, mm-hmm. like the multiple phones or whatever, whatever that was. Um, yeah. Yeah, very bad stuff uh, but they're in charge now and uh um i think uh oh oh uh, i mean we have an axis of of progressivism in north america uh oh yeah, yeah let me show this one's amazing <laughs> to me so yeah you want to talk about dump takes i mean this guy is, is sort of like a, a low-level reporter um he what was it what's the stupid uh democrat blog uh, I can't remember right now. Aklu, is it like Aklu, Fire Dog Lake or something? Like I can't that? remember. Anyways, um, this is a this is an exceptional uh, combination of of tweets over here. Um, Omlo is probably oh, sorry. The first person who's just you know ran a Twitter account has a picture of Joe Biden, <laughs> Trudeau, and Omlo saying North America finally has left trifecta. Which, by the way, <laughs> what a what a sad. Uh, first of all, complete fantasy uh, take to even consider, uh, you know, the idea that we have some kind of proper left block uh, in North America right now. But honestly, compared to like the pink tide um, of really pathetic showing. <laughs> um, but uh, Matthew Chapman right here really adds on to the idiocy of this whole exchange by adding Omlo is probably the weakest of, of the three in terms of his leftist credentials. But yeah, close enough. <laughs> <laughs> And and like with that with that person is again this is like wanting to be pampered uh, to to your feelings like look there are criti- criticisms of Omlo and I don't want to get into all of that uh, right in this moment but honestly out of the three of them uh, there is one person at least uh, who is pushing back in the slightest against you know uh, Western capital and Western finance and that's Omlo right um, what what Chapman means here by Omlo not being left is not catering uh, to his like personal need to just have somebody on television all the time, just saying orange man bat, right? Like that's what they mean by being left. It's like, Oh my God, Donald, I mean, uh, Joe Biden called, uh, you know, called uh, Donald Trump racist. Like that was what it means to be left. I mean, it's just buffoonery, uh, you know, politics and conceptions of what being left are, you know, and meanwhile, Trudeau don't even need to take too much of a dive into him. Just look at just the outright assault on native peoples in Canada over the past two years in themselves, but throughout his entire tenure as prime minister, like these are not left-wing politicians. Uh, and it's just, it's pretty funny to, uh, to fixate on the, like the one uh, from, you know, not in the Imperial core. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, first of all, the thing we realized about Democrats already after one day is they love Guaido uh, yes. a lot. Uh, Biden's already, or Biden's Blinken, um, his, I forget what, is Blinken his, uh, mm-hmm. Secretary uh, of State, Secretary of State um, said that, yeah, we're recognizing Guaido and we're, we're going to push um, Maduro out. And I mean, I, I don't know. It's weird to see a guy so fucking weak and then mm-hmm. just 
just insistence. Like this is really what a huge part, like when people say the Democrats were just mad that um, Trump was getting in the way of stuff like this, there's a lot of truth to it um, because like the, and I mean, Elliot Abrams was saying positive things about Biden's um, uh, policy uh, towards Central and South America. I mean, yeah, it, it sucks, I guess. Yeah. No, I mean, it really does. And I just want, wanted to mention, because uh, I noticed uh, we got a super chat actually on Venezuela and Bolivia that I'll, I'll just address because it was a nice gesture. Uh, but we don't really do super chats in these main shows. Those are for the Griscom streams and those other streams. So for these, we appreciate super chats to help us keep the YouTube going. Uh, but for these, we're not doing like a live question and answer thing. Um, but uh, JT, I appreciate the, the super chat there. And, uh, you know, they were asking about how like, how we could push back against, you know, Joe Biden uh, coming out of Venezuela and Bolivia. And as Matt was saying, it's already uh, clear that Joe Biden has every intention of, of uh, coming at Venezuela and supporting just the biggest joker at this point in Venezuelan politics, uh, Guaido. And, you know, the answer to that has to be understanding our ability uh, to continue expanding this kind of anti-war block uh, in Congress, but also recognizing that the fact is, is that the socialist left in this country is still exceptionally uh, weak and we need to expand and build our power um, and also start putting in those like that groundwork of connections between the United States and those other countries so that when these issues happen, we're not, you know, back, you know, we're not on our back foot trying to push back against the entire weight of empire. It's our responsibility uh, to confront Biden and this honestly what it's looking like a very frightening warmongering uh group that he's bringing into into politics yeah and i'd say like there's squad line democrats like rokana and you know obviously yeah. ilhan and we're gonna have to really pressure them and make because it was easy under it was easier under trump to do this mm-hmm. um than it's going to be now and i mean i think i think we should expect i hope we can expect uh some leadership uh from those two people particularly um on that but yeah, it's gonna be there. It's gonna be an uphill battle, and they're gonna be coming for anybody who does try to yes. uh, stand in the way of that. I think so, and I think we wanted to say a couple things about like the actual politics that we've seen early on in the Biden administration. But before we do that, uh, just in our kind of final reflection stage, just how much of a loser uh, was Donald Trump yesterday? I mean, that was really pathetic. <laughs> it was. Um, I mean. Honestly, you were feeling like that was how he was going to go out with just like this over the top uh, whimper. And that's ex- essentially what his like final speech was. It was a, a, a whimper with like uh, balloons in it. Right. It was, it was it was amazing that this guy literally was inciting people to take over the government, claiming that the, that the, the votes were, were false, which they weren't. Right. But claiming this and then just went out like such a doormat. I mean, just really looked like the and exposed himself for what he always was, yeah. was just like a wide, a whiny uh, man, baby with too much money and too much power and people who give him too much spotlight. Um, yeah. And it was, let's share that. I want to play this. Uh, yeah. This is his final speech where he he goes into post game press conference mode like he's yeah. like a quarterback, <laughs> which is like. This is why, how you know he is just the TV president. Like, mm-hmm. um, and you know the revolution will not be televised, Donald. You should have followed your uh, Gil Scott Heron. But uh, here's a. Uh, and I can only say this: uh, we have worked hard. We've left it all, as the athletes would say, we've left it all in the field. We oh my God! To, we don't have to come and say we'll never say in 
a month when we're sitting in Florida, we're not going to be looking at each other and saying, you know, if we only worked a little bit harder, you can't work harder. And we had a lot of obstacles and we went through the obstacles and we just got 75 million Except votes. Except the final that's one. a record in the history of in the history of sitting presidents. In the history of losers. <laughs> an all-time record by a lot. By many. I mean, come on, dude. That's like, that's what your, your parents say to you. Um, it's when the you most were crying most... in the back seat after losing your YMCA like, soccer it's, challenge it's, at U7. You it's know? the most votes a loser ever had, and yeah. a lot of people can feel confident about that. Oh my god! I mean, it's just it's just so pathetic, and it really is just a reminder. Like Donald Trump caused exceptional damage, as all presidents do. Um, all presidents cause exceptional damage to people all around this country and all around the world. And Donald Trump is no exception to that. Um, but this, I think, was a very clear reminder of just the lack of follow through <laughs> in this person. Uh, somebody who just always was looking for a pat on the back um, and, you know, just a real pathetic doormat of, of a person uh, happy to see him just go out like just such a complete loser uh, that he was and, you know, very happy to be rid of him. Don't get me wrong. Uh, yeah. but just, that was, that was really, really, really um, just pathetic. to see. I don't have many <laughs> other words for it. it just, I was watching, I was waiting for something. I was even waiting for like a little Trumpism at the end, like a little defiance. It wasn't, it was, it was pretty boilerplate, uh, kind Dude, of kind he, of rationalization from a from a narcissist. He never wanted to be president. I mean, I yeah, think I that was true. true. He never really wanted it, and he kind of, you know, it's yeah. I mean, it's it's an amazing thing, but it is funny to like, yeah, the QAnon people they think they want me to do all this stuff, and it's like I got to go to Florida. Sorry, QAnon people. Bye bye, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, people uh, will want to check out the final, the end of the show tonight, where I have um, included uh, Vice's compilation of Trump saying "bye bye" um, because it is very yes. satisfying to hear him say "bye bye" a whole bunch of times. I think that's about right. <laughs> um, but uh, yes, yeah, we talk about Biden a little bit. I think so. Um, I mean, I, so Biden, you know, came into office yesterday and he put out a you know, a slate of executive orders, um, most of them undoing the dis- devastation and destruction of Donald Trump. Really happy to see, uh, you know, him stopping, not even him stopping, but the Keystone uh, pipeline being stopped. You know, that was the work of serious uh, native and, you know, environmental activists and socialists across the country for a really long time trying to stop that. And that was a great thing to see. Um, obviously, you know, rejoining the who um, and participating <laughs> in the fight against the coronavirus is, is phenomenal. Um, it, you know, but I don't know. I I've been sort of watching this um, and being a little bit confused by the way that some people on the left, the socialist left have reacted to this. I mean, this is like basic kind of politics stuff. This is like people, I think that some people are forgetting just how badly Donald Trump managed this crisis. 
Um, like Donald Trump really mismanaged this crisis. And if he just, if he wasn't such a baby, uh, honestly, about the coronavirus and just try to act like it wasn't a real thing for as long as he did, you know, he probably wouldn't have, would have got a lot closer to, you know, staying in office right here. Uh, so Joe Biden coming in doing the kind of bare minimum on, on the coronavirus is good from a human survival standpoint, but it's nothing that is making me sit here and think like, okay, I got it all wrong about this guy. You know, Joe Biden's left. Joe Biden's going to be the next FDR. I don't think we've seen any kind of signals like that. Yeah, I mean, uh, David Dayen is uh, really good to watch on Biden's executive action. And he has this um, piece here I'll share um, on the day one agenda. And the only thing that um, from what Dayen wanted to see of uh, executive on day one that Biden did was the uh, permitting of the um, of oops uh, of the um, Keystone XL. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, that uh, applause there. Um, but particularly on, you know, just an example, actually, that's indicative of the limitations here is that, like, for instance, he uh, stopped um, or continued um, the student loan policies mm-hmm. regarding payments and interest. The authority that he has to do that is the exact same uh, authority that he needs to just cancel, do, do debt cancellation. Mm-hmm. So there's there like, and it should be expected that he does that because it is the right policy, not because he needs to like cover his left flank. I think, um, mm-hmm. and to the extent that he does any of these things, I, I think it will be because they are the right thing to do, particularly in a pandemic, depression, um, yes. more than uh, you know. Biden, uh, you know, reading the right magazines, literally just mimicking other other governments, uh, again, not radical governments, but governments in, you know, in Europe and hell, even South America uh, that have been just trying to look out for people on the most basic level, something that our, you know, the former president uh, and Congress completely failed to do. But I think that's a great way to put it is like, you know, there is a question of how far he's willing to go. And I think that's what says sort of irked me about some people. We're saying like, oh, we should celebrate these things and claim them as victories of our movement. Um, I think that that is one, really setting the bar low. And two, the kind of larger strategy issues that we're facing is Joe Biden is going to do the bare minimum. And if you start praising him for doing the bare minimum, you're just going to get more of that. Two, the most important thing that this movement that we have uh, can be doing is recognizing two fundamental realities, right? One that the democratic socialist movement in this country is still fairly small and politically weak, while also understanding that that movement is growing immensely and is getting more and more powerful each day, right? So we both have to deal with the fact that right now our ability to you know, implement our will um, isn't as strong as it needs to be for the moment. Um, but also being able to recognize that it's getting stronger every day. So that means that we have to be thinking about, you know, how we are reacting to these like early days of the Biden administration. And to me, the most important thing that we need to be doing along with fighting for like, you know, these basic protections that people need right now and doing the kind of lobbying and fighting to make sure that the things that they will do get done. Um, we also need to be really making it clear to the average person who does not follow politics closely that there is a world of difference between Joe Biden's Democratic Party and the Democratic Socialist Movement. And the fact that the Joe Biden Democratic Party is not implementing the things that the Democratic Socialists want to put into pl- place is because the Democratic Party has no real desire to fundamentally change uh, the world that we live in.
Absolutely. Yeah. So don't get caught up. And, and just like the last thing I'll say is this, a lot of people got radicalized towards the end of Obama, became upset with Barack Obama, got invigorated by Bernie Sanders and now find themselves as socialists. For a lot of people, this is a kind of new moment for them uh, where they've basically been in like pure opposition where you have like a far, you know, far right uh, person in, in Donald Trump in office. And now you have, again, another devastating neoliberal um, in Joe Biden in office that I, I think that some people who, especially people who socialize in circles where they're surrounded by more liberals and more centrists and folks like that, might not be used to yet sort of sitting out of the party, right? Cause there's going to be a lot of stupid um, memeing of, of Harris and Biden over the next couple of months. And you're not going to be able to, you know, show up to the party and, and participate in all that. So don't get swept up in this. Like you need to be prepared to hold firm and start telling people who thought that we were very much, you know, sh- of a shared mindset on these things that no, I actually find that the democratic party is just as much an enemy to the progress of working people in this country, just as much an enemy to the prospect of peace um, around the globe and just as much an enemy uh, to the fight against climate change as I do the Republicans. Yeah, hundred um, percent. I don't have anything to add to that. Yeah, no, I think, I think we got, I mean, I think at, at this point um, to everybody, I think this is our last uh, for a little while pie in the sky, uh, Joe Biden, a talk for a little while. <laughs> um, well, so we have a couple things we're going to get to before we get to, to Milton. Um, some pretty exciting stuff. Uh, but just in between, I wanted to do a quick pitch. Uh, thank everybody so much for the support of this project, Left Reckoning. Um, it's been a really amazing uh, first couple of months of, of it. I mean, it's hard to believe we're even still just on our third um, official episode. I mean, it's really been an incredible out, uh, outpouring. Um, of, of support and ideas. And, um, uh, you know, it's been, it's a great community. It's been so great to see the TMBS community really start to thrive in this, in this new outfit. It means a lot to all of us. Um, for folks who aren't already supporting us, know that you get this extra show after this show, um, the post game. Very soon, we're going to start adding more Patreon uh, bonus content and interviews like that. Uh, this first month, we're still very much in our building stage, but we're going to go back to that kind of uh, double, uh, two to one content uh, for patrons. You get the theory reading group, which is a lot of fun. Um, you get access to the discord, which is very much humming in the live. And uh, you know, you get to support this work. Uh, we want to make sure that as much of our work as possible is out there to the public, because, you know, we find this to be really important. We find building this community to be really important. Uh, so if you're able to support, we really appreciate it a lot. And uh, we're very close to hitting uh, 700 patrons. I think we were four away uh, before the show started. So if you're on the fence, you know, yeah, be 700, us, man. Yeah. That sounds like a lot of fun to me. Yeah. Uh, uh, patrons will have uh, sometime next week. I'm going to record a discussion with Stephen Robbins or otherwise known as Ronald Reagan, immigration attorney out of uh, Washington. And we're going to talk about um, Trump and then look forward to what Biden actually should be doing. Um, and again, I think it's important to keep the, the, the two views of, you know, um, what he can be doing yeah. and what he is doing. Um, and like, you know, where, where you come down in terms of like where you what how you posture yourself in terms of expectations there is I think secondary I think as long as you can delineate what needs to be done and what they are doing um, I mean mm. that's the mission that I'm at least tasking myself um, in this administration I, I think that's exactly the way to think about it and and you know I I also do uh, Griscom live streams uh, here on YouTube I think I'll do one on Monday either at five or six Eastern. 
Uh, I haven't figured out a date, but I'll be there and I'll try to get, I'll try to get those at least every two weeks and hopefully start get, getting to do those at least once a week too. Uh, so this is a great time to, uh, you know, subscribe, follow us on Twitter at Left Reckoning. We're pretty much at Left Reckoning, never out there. Anyways, uh, done with the pitch for now. Appreciate everybody. Um, but hmm, how to set this one up? So who do you think um, is the largest farm landholder in the United States? Um, I'd say Old McDonald. <laughs> <laughs> You'd be surprised that it is a computer mogul uh, name of Bill Gates, uh, who has now uh, bought so much land in the past few months through his uh, different holding companies um, that he now owns 242,000 acres across the United States in farm, um, in farm holdings, which is Absolutely incredible. In his home state of Washington, he owns over 16,000 acres. In Arkansas, he owns nearly 48,000 acres. In Louisiana, a whopping 70,000 acres of farmland. And that's only going to increase as we start to see what is the continued fallout, um, the continued fallout from this coronavirus, uh, you know, disaster, economic disaster, people like Bill Gates, people who have a lot of money are going to be cashing in uh, as folks get more and more desperate to sell their assets. Um, it's, it's pretty frightening uh, when you realize how many small farmers in this country have been completely bought out over the past few decades. Um, you know, so like large and very large farms produce around like 63% of agricultural products in the United States. Um, but there still are a significant amount of small family farms, so around like 2 million. Um, but much of that farmland over the next two decades is very likely to change hand and, and people change hands as the farming population continues to age, right? And that's a real crisis in farming is that most of these small family farms really are uh, run by older folks. Um, and there isn't really like this young generation of farmers coming into that. So what you're seeing now is these massive corporate uh, buyouts of, you know, small farms. Um, in particular, somebody like Bill Gates, who's not just buying farms for investment opportunity. He's buying farms because he wants to control agriculture in the United States. And I'm not going to go on some wild Alex Jones conspiracy theory about how he's trying to poison people with hormones or anything like that. But what I am going to ask people is, do you want to live in a country where the means by which we produce the food that we eat is held not just by a few rich people, but in particular um, by one gentleman uh, with a long history, by the way, of just buying out entire industries so that he can pursue his own, uh, you know, ideas, regardless of whether or not they are, you know, proven. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that, I think that understands that he's an intellectual property pirate. Like Microsoft yeah. was hit with a consent decree by the DOJ saying, Hey, stop doing monopoly stuff. And they, they didn't. Um, but that was, they mm-hmm. at least got the attention of regulators in the nineties for antitrust. Um, and they would do things like, um, I was listening to a Grubstakers episode on this um, nice. um, before, and um, famously, Microsoft would have these like merger discussions, but that would just be cover for industrial espionage. So, mm-hmm. like, he's the complete 
um, piracy. Like that, mm-hmm. that, that's what Microsoft is. Piracy with good lawyers to like sort it out who owns what <laughs> afterwards. And now he gets to decide. Cause look, I mean, my mom grew up on a dairy farm, uh, mm-hmm. dairy, dairy and soybeans, uh, um, near Wapton, North Dakota. And the exact same thing's happening, right? Like the, um, there's not, they're not going to be able to pass the farm down to a next generation. So ultimately, probably going to get bought up by someone like this. And mm-hmm. that's what's happening on every farm around there. And it is horrible. And that this guy, with these profits that were, again, not, it's not like he was doing the coding. Like Bill Gates is like the idea that this figure would get to determine <laughs> agriculture in the United yeah. States of America because he got lucky in the 90s and like got on the right team. Is mm-hmm. it's revolted. I mean, it's one of the most disgusting things about capitalism. I mean, and not to mention, you know, the ways he gets to play, play, uh, like the playground um, that the Gates Foundation has turned other countries around the world into. I mean, let's just assume and hope for the best that you know he's going to use this power that he's amassed for good. Like, I guess. Well, it's like even if his intentions are good, like, like let's just put that like you know just as as a thought experiment mm-hmm. as Sam Harris style right like even if his intentions are good the possibility of just ut- utmost disaster from Bill Gates is huge because as I was you know saying earlier you can look at this with his um, philanthropy where he basically because he has such a large purse becomes the sole director of a lot of co- uh, of a lot of uh, nonprofits around the United States around the globe and gets to essentially dictate depending on whatever thing most recent thing that he read in reader's digest or whatever the hell he reads um you know whatever a news article excited him the most as like the new innovative strategy that's his whole thing it's like putting a new innovative strategies like micro lending for example which has been a complete disaster around the globe for small farmers just introducing them to the finance system so that they can just be perpetually indebted uh to financial institutions right like that's something that somebody like bill gates likes to push right which has been a disaster for people put him in charge of our food system and we'll be facing the same kind of uh, the same kind of potential for just serious, um, you know, serious mismanagement of the land. The second point uh, that I want to make, which I think is much, much more important, honestly, is just the question of, of, of democracy as Matt was hitting on too. It's like, that's the thing that's disgusting about capitalism. This guy did computer work, right? And now he gets to decide agriculture policy in the United States. Like it's a complete joke. This is not like a rational distribution of, of, of resources or power in the society. And like, st- so like the inequality aspects of capitalism, yes, all of these other aspects of, ca- uh, you know, criticism of capitalism are 100% valid. But this is also something that I think often gets overlooked that it's insane that somebody, because they just have access to such a, immense amounts of, like large amounts of money, now get to dictate a policy and just have actual material power, not just wealth, not that he just, oh, he never has to worry about money again, or he can buy whatever he wants, blah, blah. No, this guy actually not has influence over your life. He has influence over these huge uh, communities. I mean, we're talking about in Arkansas and Louisiana, the guy has over 50,000 acres in Arkansas. Like that's not a small land to owner. That's somebody who has incredible influence on that entire state. Meanwhile, he's from Washington, right? This guy has no connection to these people. It's a joke. It's not democratic. What is it? Cascade Investments? It's Cascade Investments. It's his (laughs) sleeper company that does all this kind of stuff. And of course, you know, by the way, this story, um, which has been in all of the major kind of landholding and farmer publications for the past few days, the, the, 
the actual like the facts of the story are just that he bought all this land because they're still refusing to say what they want to do with it. Right. The thing is, it's not even like uh, Bill Gates came out and said, like, I'm buying a bunch of land and we're going to, you know, do green agriculture, something like that. Everyone's just assuming because he wrote a blog post about, you know, family farmers raising more chickens. Um, right. That he's going to, you know, go back to some kind of old school version of agriculture. Right. He, they, he, he just got his Cascade, uh, was it Cascade Holdings or Cascade Investments uh, to buy up, you know, significant portions of land, yeah. right? And he has all of these, all these different acres and all the, the land holdings that he has are owned by different companies. They're all, not, old, not all owned by Cascade. Um, anyways, the point is, is that this is just another great example of the direct threat uh, that capitalism has to any semblance of an idea of democracy mm-hmm. or community even. Right. Yeah. Because I mean, somebody in the chat points out that the ideal of family farm can be romanticized. But the fact is, that it, it is a decentralization of power. And like, mm-hmm. I, I think you can make the points, uh, which I, I have time for, which is like, they're an insulation against the natives taking back the land. Obviously, all that stuff is true. Um, but this is like capitalism in action, right? Like, fa- some guy, I mean, it is it is unbelievable. Uh, like, oh, are you there? Um, Oh man, did I drop out on you? You dropped out very briefly, but you're back now. Um, let's see. Okay, I, I hope I'm sorry I'm about that. Good. Let me just make sure it wasn't my connection. Um, okay, we're I all think good. it was mine. Yeah, um, but yeah, Bill Gates. I mean, it's <laughs> the very first um, thing I rabbit hole I ever went down on the internet was mm-hmm. a conspiracy theory about uh, that the global elite were building a giant ark in the Rockies. Um, cause they're expecting a flood. Um, and, uh, for, and it wasn't, first of all, climate change wasn't like, that wasn't, uh, operative. This was like the nineties and whoever wrote this conspiracy, um, wasn't the climate change, uh, cons- wasn't concerned about it, but I printed it out and showed it to my teacher and she looked at me like I'm crazy, but I just want to say, Bill, what are you doing with all that farmland? Because another point we should just say <laughs> is that farmland is distinct from say timber or uh, mm-hmm, ranch mm-hmm. land. Right. Mm-hmm. And like, I, I've personally come across Ted Turner owns like Montana basically. Um, <laughs> and like the badlands and um, it, right. Like that, this is about agriculture. This isn't just about, um, about you know, he wants to have plays. Mm-hmm. He's going for a, a play on this sector. And it is, yeah, it is just disgusting. Because what's this guy, what's this guy really offered? What's the great fucking innovation? Um, we should do something more in depth on Bill Gates. Yeah. Uh, sometime in, in the future. Um, but it's also, it's just like, it's disgusting. And it's amazing how much uh, his like PR, um, campaign essentially at this point uh has has done for his image that people don't find <laughs> yeah I mean, somebody these- like this you know buying up all the the land and you know all the agriculture land in the country um yeah. as something suspicious right because it's like oh it's nice bill gates you know but you know if uh, he partners with netflix and vox he's going to keep us updated up to date exactly or with, with their positive stories i mean honestly bill gates um is like one of like the biggest uh he is the architect of like one of the biggest psyops for capitalism mm-hmm. uh, which is like this fixation i can't remember the name of his organization right now um but basically just pays journalists like obscene amounts of money uh, to print like uplifting news stories yeah. right? <laughs> um to basically basically try to convince oh. people that like you know this system is really working for a lot of folks uh when all you have to do is look out your window to see uh that it really is not yeah steve pinker's grift uh, and 
I think though we should juxtapose that with some another corporation that people do uh, rightfully understand is is very uh, worrying, um, which is Walmart, who has uh, the the Walton Family Foundation, uh, which is a foundation meant to spend you know the billions of dollars that the the Walton family uh, inherited from their their father um, for their just insanely large a uh, corporation has been um, spending insane amounts of money in the Colorado River Basin. Do we have that, uh, that store handy? Oh, yeah. Um, the, oh, yeah. Give me one second. Yeah, no worries. Um, but, the, the, but the Walton Family Foundation has been pouring millions of dollars into nonprofit groups that are concerned with the Colorado River, which you absolutely, absolutely should be. Um, but they have been pushing um, basically demand management uh, programs in the area, which pay farmers to not irrigate their lands, right, all across the basin, which is, yeah, here we go. Yeah, so the the Walmart Family Foundation has been uh, has been pouring millions of dollars into uh, you know water focused uh, nonprofits, around uh, twenty five million dollars a year to nonprofits concerned about the Colorado River. It's clear the foundation cares deeply about the river in this time of excruciating drought, and some of its money goes to r- river restoration or more efficient irrigation. Yet its main interest is promoting demand management. The water marketing scheme um, seeks to add 500,000 acre feet of water to declining Lake Powell by paying rural farmers to temporarily stop irrigating. Essentially, um, and the reason that people are critical about this is that what that essentially does is it commodifies water um, by putting a price on, on water for folks who are choosing to irrigate their lands um, instead of receiving that kind of payment, right? It's a kind of early stage of commodification of an actual existing resource. And we're not sitting here um, necessarily criticizing the idea of doing water demand uh, management in the area. I'm not an expert on the Colorado River Basin. Uh, I'm not saying anything like that. The issue here and what this in these times piece, uh, what I should also mention is written by Dave Martian, points out is that none of the journalists or the local publications around us who would normally, you know, sniff into this story are looking into it. And that's because Walmart has been giving everybody grants um, and all of these boards, even though, uh, you know, Walmart is not controlling these nonprofits because everyone is recognizing that this is where the pipes um, are flowing or where the money is coming from um, are going to be much less likely uh, to blow the whistle on any kind of activities um, from Walmart. It should also be mentioned that Walmart had pay um, in the area that I lived in, South Carolina, a huge uh, settlement from a lawsuit because they were polluting, I believe it was the Santee River uh, in South Carolina um, with just really horrendous uh, mismanagement by uh, putting a fertilizer out in by uh, drainage ditches, uh, which was then going into the, uh, the river and polluting it. Mm-hmm. Um, anyways, Walmart is a, is a massive polluter. Um, and also the Walton family is not a group of people um, who we want uh, to be trying to, again, make these kind of decisions for communities. Right. Um, and also it's just, it's just something that is a very reasonable thing to wonder uh, why the Walton family right now is so fixated on the Colorado River Basin and the fact that they have now basically 
basically bought out the local watchdogs and bought out the local journalists uh, should be raising alarm bells in everybody's head. Yeah, I mean, that's the dystopian element of this is all the local news and local like watchdog organizations. We're at a point in, in media where it is all hollowing out, right? Newsrooms mm-hmm. have been hollowing out for decades. Um, and, and the only jobs in media that are rising are like uh, copywriters for you know, public relations. And, and so like the one area that gets – and, you know, like ProPublica, for instance, does a lot of great work. But mm-hmm. philanthropy is a very corrupt model and it's not to be trusted uh, and for this reason because you have these mass – I mean like we talked about with Bill Gates. But, I mean, the Walton family is – they're not your friend. And mm-hmm. even if they were your friend, like why should they get to – like your friends don't have – your friends don't get to decide the Colorado River is a commodity now, right? That's not how friends act. You, if, if you're going to commodify the Colorado River, you're going to take a democratic decision um, uh, somehow. And yeah, like they just come in and I mean, this is how we talked a little bit previously about how hollowed out local news is uh, mm-hmm. particularly. And, but I mean, this makes the case that also Politico um, I mean, there's a lot of money sloshing around Politico. And then even the New York Times, who ostensibly should be above these sorts of uh, things, obviously not, because they're not, they, they talk about, you know, uh, water issues, as the In These Times piece points out, without mentioning what the Waltons are doing on the Colorado River for 41 million people. And I, I think so, too. And, and just I'm just going to go back to this piece really quick. Um, to make two, a couple quick points is that one, you know, people are raising the alarm bells that, you know, since the Walton family is essentially buying all these organizations, it means that uh, no one is really going to challenge the strategies that are put forward by Walmart, right? So that's one kind of, uh, you know, nice criticism that like, oh, maybe they're wrong, just like what we were saying about Bill Gates. Um, but I'll read this right now. You don't have to put it up. I can just read it. Um, this is something that is exceptionally worrying uh, that from this in these times piece that says in May 2020, the two nonprofits um, where the Walton family had put a lot of money into uh, the two nonprofits collaborated in a story exploring the investment group water asset management, speculating that it sought to buy and dry agricultural water, leaving behind barren dust bowls. What was not reported that only municipalities can buy and dry under Colorado's already tough water anti-speculation laws. The big omission was that a Walton family funded nonprofit, the Nature Conservancy, had an ongoing demand management study exactly where and when the water asset management group was buying land. And that's the kind of so cloaking story themselves here. just to spell it out. They're cloaking themselves yeah. in concern about environmental issues to advantage themselves. Exactly, and it's just one of those things where it's like, well, I mean, the bigger point is that the local organizations are basically being bought out that people aren't investigating. So from the nonprofits to the local publications, uh, this is again from the piece, Colorado college journalism instructor, Corey Hutchins said he was surprised to hear the size of some of the funding with KUNC and Aspen journalism, each receiving $100,000 a piece for several years. That sounds like a big Colorado water story in itself. You might also worry about self-censorship. Anyways, this is just the way that big capital is moving through 
philanthropy in the Walton's case, um, and then also in Bill Gates' case, just like through outright buying, um, to play major roles in the environmental aspects of our society. And then all, in Bill Gates' case in particular, um, the agricultural aspects of our society. Completely, um, you know, in Walmart's case, clandestine, um, because if you own, if you're owning the newspapers, um, and you're owning the, or, the watchdog organizations, uh, you set yourself up in a situation where there's not going to be a lot of folks who have the ability to challenge you. Um, and we just wanted to highlight that, uh, today because these are the kind of stories that don't always float up to the, you know, the front page. Um, but these are the kind of slow burning stories that can have severe, um, impacts on society. Yeah. And I also think just in the context of all this attention, um, you know, we mentioned the conspiracy theories, but there's a lot of um, you know, anti-vax stuff going on about Bill Gates. Look at what Bill Gates is putting his money, um, I think. And, I think that's a good point. Uh, uh, if you really want to follow this stuff closely. Yeah. No, I think that's right. So I think uh, I think we're about ready to... Oh, actually, before we get to the, the Milne thing, let's do <laughs> our trifecta of just bad companies. Uh, just this quick thing on Amazon uh, to follow up on this uh, for everybody. If you have that, that first one ready. Yeah. Um, so again, uh, Amazon workers in Alabama are preparing a union um, in their facility. and They are fighting against one of the worst offenders of union busting activities um, in Amazon. A company that has hired some of the nastiest anti-union lawyers um, has been trying to use every trick in the book to prevent uh, these workers from being able to form a union. Um, and this was, I have to say, one of the goofiest attempts uh, that Amazon has put out, which is a incredibly condescending a website. If you just want to click on it, Matt, um, I just click on the, the actual site itself for a second, if you don't mind. Uh, a website that they're sort of circulating <laughs> around the workers uh, in this Amazon, uh, sorry, this Alabama warehouse oh. facility, uh, where basically they're doing the classic, oh, if you have to pay dues, uh, then you're Doers. actually going to be making less money in your, uh, in your paycheck. Obviously, forgetting uh, to mention the fact that if you are in a union, you make significantly more on average uh, than non-union employees uh, because, uh, because you have people who are out there advocating um, for you. So don't pay for what you don't know uh, is the big push from Amazon. Jeez. Um, it's pretty insulting. And you can just sort of scroll down. It goes on for a while. Really goofy website, I have to say, for one, one of the wealthiest companies in the Be world. Be a doer, not a doer. Damn, man. Somebody also pointed out to me that uh, it's very clearly a Squarespace. Yeah, oh, um, 100%. This is, this is a Squarespace very, scroll. They, they, care, they care enough to try to union bus, but they don't care enough to make a more compelling website than this. Don't buy that dinner. Don't buy those school supplies. Don't buy those gifts because you won't have that almost $500 you pay in dues. Why not save the money and get the books, gifts, and things you want? Because well, we know what you want. Books, gifts, and things. Uh Actually, if you go up to the top, uh, um, to real quickly, it just goes on forever. It's the same old nonsense. I'm sorry. The first big wall text that they have, um, ABHM1, doers, why pay almost $500 in dues? We've got you covered. Asterisk. <laughs> and they put in very tiny letters um, in a completely unreadable font. If you could just highlight that. Um, applies to regular full-time employees. Oh, which, God. again, is one of those great problems <laughs> of, uh, you know, 
of people who work in that kind of uh, industry is that they love to schedule just under enhance uh, being a full time. <laughs> yeah, you have to enhance to be able to see the asterisk, which is the <laughs> reason why people are trying to form a union because so that they can make sure that everybody is getting those benefits and is also making sure that everybody that nobody is getting artificially cut off uh, to prevent them from getting the benefits that Amazon is advertising. If you go back, Matt, um, there's the uh, there's the other website uh, that was put together. Um, it's not on my tweet. It's in the show notes. Oh. Um, but our friends, uh, at the good folks at, uh, what is it? The tech workers at a, hold on, y'all, sorry about that. The Tech Workers Coalition, uh, which is a co- coalition of workers in and around the tech industry, labor organizers, community organizers, and friends, um, you know, who do great advocacy. Uh, they put together a phenomenal uh, parody website uh, called Do It With Real Power. <laughs> if you go down to the very bottom, Matt, sorry, the second tweet. Yeah. Do It With Real Power. Hey, BHM1 workers, why join a union? Because Amazon has never had you covered in the asterisk. Uh, they put no caveats. Um, <laughs> basically, for people who are living, they created the almost one-to-one copy, but with factual information here. Uh, Amazon's leadership has kept you from the high wages, healthcare, vision, and dental benefits, as well as a safety committee and an appeals process that you deserve. There's so much more you can do for your career and your family in solidarity with fellow workers. Unions pay, know the facts. An authorization card or online form is a sign of solidarity and the first step to higher wages and benefits. Workers do not pay union dues until your union has won a contract and winning a contract can mean warehouse conditions, protections from arbitrary disciplines and firings, salary increases and proper grievance protocols. Uh, Be a worker with rights. If you join a union, it will be a transformative meaning. It will be easier to be as helpful. But I want to see what they say about (laughs) unions mean more. On average, unionized unionized workers earn 19% more than non-unionized workers. So if you make the average $31,000 a year, a union could win you an increase in your paycheck of $5,900 annually. That's a whole lot more dinners, school supplies, gifts, and dignity. I love it. I think that's such a good. <laughs> I mean, I think it's just amazing how the num- one of the great like great internet companies of our time does the shitty Squarespace scroll yeah. and can be topped just like the copy be a doer. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, oh. uh, my boss calls me a doer, man, and st- and in the process of telling me not to join a union. That that's dark man that's bad i mean they think the thing is they think you're they think we're all idiots and uh they uh you know we should come at them strong for that because it's just it's it's honestly it's just it's it's not just evil it's just really insulting i found that Mm -hmm. whole website to be yeah all right y'all um so we have this interview that we did with mount alamani going over the events uh in uganda uh for folks who might not be familiar Bobby Wine, um, who ran against uh, Museveni, who has been in power for 35 years. Wine um, is, has been under house arrest, essentially, uh, since the election. There's a lot of reason to believe that that election process was extremely rigged. Um, and uh, despite, even, even, with that, uh, even without proving any kind of like, fraud on the election itself, Bobby Wine has faced immense violence from the police and the military throughout this campaign. In no way, shape, or form can you consider this election uh, to have been legitimate 
Um, Milton Alamati is going to spend a lot of time breaking down why. Uh, we recorded it on Tuesday, so the second half where we sort of talk a little bit about uh, Joe Biden and the January 6th protests, uh, that's why it might seem like we're talking in the future there. Mm-hmm. All right, folks, here we go. And David, you want to uh, mute yourself. Cool. Everybody, welcome back to Left Reckoning. Uh, Matt and I are joined by our friend, uh, Milton Alamadi, uh, the founder of Black Star News, also the host of the African History Club, which you can find on Patreon, which is a, a must-subscribe. How are you doing today, Milton? Very good. Good to see you, man. Good to see yeah. both of you. No, it really is It really is such a treat. Um, it's too bad uh, the subject matter we have today isn't too too light. Uh, I think, you know, no, no reason to really dance around it. Um, what's going on in Uganda, especially for the past few months, but particularly in this past week, yeah. has been quite uh, striking with uh, Museveni, who's been the leader for what, about 35 years, yes. uh, yeah. claiming victory again in this election, uh, claiming 59% of the vote, um, while his main opponent, uh, Bobby Wine, um, is saying that, uh, one, there's election fraud, and two, has been holed up in his house, I believe. Right. Um, you know, surrounded by military and police. That's right. Uh, what's the kind of situation right now? What's it looking like there? Okay, well, it's, 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 it's kind of explosive because, as you said, he is surrounded by about 500 soldiers. But it also tells you something. <laughs> if one individual and his wife, those are the only two people, as far as I know, in the home, surrounded by 500 soldiers with a helicopter that flies overhead every 30 minutes, with a drone that comes and hovers overhead for a little bit. So I think clearly this show of uh, overwhelming strength is not really being targeted at Bobby Wine. You don't need 500 soldiers to confine one individual and his wife uh, in their home. He's sending the signal, the Museveni, as you pointed out, he's been around for 35 years. There'd be a brutal dictator, this typical neo-colonial regime in Africa. He's sending a signal to supporters of Bobby Wine, but not only supporters of Bobby Wine. Um, but after 35 years, you can imagine that people want change. He's sending a signal to all those that would perhaps consider uh, starting a civil protest uh, to get rid of him, that this is what will meet you. If I can do this in the capital city of Kampala with all the media uh, in, uh, from all over the world, witnessing this, you know, imagine what I will do to you <laughs> in the other parts of the country where you don't have all these cameras, right? Mm-hmm. So now the guy is running out of food, right? Um, and the U.S. ambassador to Uganda. And the U.S. is a big culprit here because the U.S. has sustained this guy with U.S. taxpayers' money, $1 billion every year. And I'll get to explain that a, a, in a little bit. But the ambassador, her name is Natalie Brown, tried to go and see Bobby Wine because I get the sense that the U.S. has had enough and they can see the writing on the wall, too, that the young people really want this guy out now. So she tried to go see him at, at his home yesterday and she was blocked by the Ugandan soldiers from going. And people are saying this is very significant because really without the U.S., this guy would not be able to supply to survive. They not only provide him all that money, but they also provide him the military equipment. They also train his army. And his son was also trained here at uh, Fort uh, Leavenworth, the military academy there. 
you know, grooming the next dictator uh, in Uganda, of course. But it looks like that scheme is not going to happen. And I think, so now he's, uh, I think he's actually losing it a bit. He used to be a little better in terms of dealing with Uganda and dealing with the U.S. at the same time. But I think he's panicked. He's uh, realized that um, in his scheme of things, how to prolong his regime, he had never imagined that a person like Bobby Wine would come out. So what did he do? He's stolen the last five elections or so. This is the sixth one. And in every case, he would deploy massively on the streets and supporters of the opposition candidate in the last uh, four elections. It had been a guy named Dr. Akiza Besige, a retired uh, uh, military officer and a retired medical doctor. And he has supporters, but most of his supporters are like working class folks. So they can only come out to the streets for a while. And then after a while, you know, things die down. They go back to their nine to fives. Now, in this case, it's a bit different. You find a, a guy who's 38, the country, the population is 80% uh, under the age of 35. So what he did is he did a voter drive, massive voter drive, and got them to register in the millions throughout the country. <laughs> so he changed the voting role completely overnight. And essentially, that is why he won. They voted for him. Nobody in Uganda believes he, uh, the dictator won. And the way the U.S. is now sort of distinguishing itself from him, it seems clear that the U.S. also know that he clearly uh, lost this election. So I think that's the kind of summary I can give you. Yeah, well, I, I wanted to ask you, you know, a couple things and also frame this for folks, too, because it's not just the reaction after the election. Uh, Bobby Wine throughout this campaign has yes. been targeted by the military. And the Absolutely. Police. Um, and also in 2019, uh, they implemented a social media tax. Yes. Uh, to basically prevent people from being able to interact online Absolutely. and and um, after this election as well, shut down um, the Internet. Could you sort of categorize or explain to folks who might not have been following what's been happening during yeah. the campaign itself? Of course. Thank you for those questions. Because uh, you, as you and I know, it is only in Uganda that this would be actually described as, quote, quote, unquote, election. <laughs> yes, completely preposterous. Uh, let's talk about the immediate violence that accompanied the campaign. So the guy was uh, kind of slick in the beginning, the dictator Museveni. He said, Oh, due to the coronavirus, um, uh, it's not safe to hold regular elections. So everything, the campaign is going to be done electronically. But I think he then went back and thought about it and thought, wait, this might actually hurt me. So he said, no, yeah, you can uh, have people show up, but no more than 200 people. So he starts campaigning. And of course, you know, a lot more than 200 people show up at his rallies. But then when he sees Bobby Wine's rallies, where tens of thousands of people are actually showing up, you know, whole communities, then he panics. And that's when the armed forces starts attacking Bobby Wine and his supporters physically. And the worst incident was on November 18, when Bobby Wine was arrested and there was a protest all over the country. And the soldiers started opening live round fire on demonstrators. And the government itself admits that 54 people were killed. And people in Uganda believe that when that is the official count, the number could be four or five times, even more than that. And about 600 people are arrested and they're still uh, in, in jail you know, in prisons. And these are supporters of Bobby Wine as well. And worst of all, 
they started targeting journalists as well. Some journalists were expelled from the country, uh, but the journalists who accompanied Bobby Wine on his rallies, uh, they were beaten or shot at. So then all the journalists got together and they demanded an explanation from the police chief. Why is this going on? And the police chief, and this was <laughs> infamously said, and this was widely reported. His name is uh, Martin Okoth Ochola. And I want people to know this name because this is the kind of guy who needs to be brought up in front of the ICC. I know the ICC has all its problems, but still there's some people that deserve to be indicted anyway. And this is one such person. He said, these journalists are being beaten for their own good, for their own protection, because they tend to go into places that are not safe. So when we beat them, we're actually dissuading them. (laughs) And therefore, we're helping to save their lives. And he said this in an official press conference, and it was reported by Reuters, and it ran in many publications uh, around uh, the world. One actually was shot and severely injured on the head, one of the reporters. And you notice that it was only the journalists covering Bobby Wine who were being assaulted. All those trailing the dictator himself, nobody was harmed. And then in terms of the internet itself was shut down totally two days uh, before the election. So the country went for about five days with a total 100% internet blackout. And as you uh, also noted, yes, they imposed this this tax last year. And obviously it's also to uh, incapacitate uh, the young people who are, they're 80% of the population, but also 80% unemployed. So even though it may sound like just a a few dollars, it's a lot of money uh, in a country like Uganda. Here's one interesting point though. The internet, the primary reason why it was shut down was obviously to prevent people from communicating the results as they were coming out. Because what Bobby Wine supporters did was to develop an application and the app is called YouVote. And it would allow people to, because after they vote at the polling stations, all the candidates' agents sign off on the form with the the total vote count per polling station. So what Bobby Wine supporters or voters did, they would take an image of it on their cell phone, and then they would transmit it to the app. Now, by shutting down the internet, that process was disrupted. But in shutting down the internet, the process affected everybody, (laughs) whether you were opposition, or whether you're the regime. So the question is, how was the regime able to obtain the figures from where they got the 59% (laughs) that the dictator was awarded? So when a reporter from Al Jazeera asked this question, (laughs) the uh, election commissioner, who, by the way, is handpicked by the dictator himself, had no answer, could not respond, mumbled, and then said, oh, we had our own way of doing it. (laughs) And their own way, of course, is basically just cooking up the numbers. Oh. Uh, you mentioned earlier the $1 billion in aid that the U.S. gives uh, Museveni. What's the prognosis for him uh, with the U.S. losing patience? I think it's not a good sign, really, to be honest with you. And that is the dilemma of the neo-colonial dictator in an African country. And if we look at the case of Mobutu in the Congo, which had changed into Zaire, he would ran the country for 37 years. People that know the history of the Congo may recall that once Congo won its independence from uh, Belgium, uh, Patrice Lumumba, this Pan-African nationalist prime minister, uh, was murdered brutally 
and uh, involving the CIA and Belgian intelligence and Belgian military because they saw a person that would challenge the control over Congo. It's one of the richest countries mineral-wise in the world, has uranium, which at that time, of course, was you know, was uh, big, important for the West, it still is, and has everything else. You name it, diamond, cobalt, gold, you name it. Congo has that. So that's why uh, Patricio Lumumba was brutally murdered. And Mobutu, uh, he fits perfectly the caricature of the typical neocolonial dictator in Africa uh, who uses the public treasury as his personal possession. He tramps, uh, tramples on the population, uh, kills, massacres, locks up opposition, but he's fine so long as he's tight with the West, in this case, the United States. So they maintain him for, uh, till 1930, uh, 1997. But then when the, the U.S. saw the writing on the wall that this guy is completely unpopular now, uh, they saw the uh, signs of change about to come, they started backing off uh, from him. And now we see the kind of similar statements that the U.S. started making about Mobutu, uh, they're now making about Museveni for the first time. This is the U.S. for the first time saying that the, the election was fundamentally flawed. That's a very serious uh, repudiation, really. You know, you're essentially saying we can't work with you anymore. And I think that's how he's reading it, too. And that's how, why he's becoming much more repressive. And why does the U.S. give Museveni $1 billion? And, uh, and, and, then, uh, and now he's still able to get away with uh, the brutality historically, because Somalia is one of the most unstable countries in Africa. And there's a, a militia there called Al-Shabaab, and it was growing in strength. And the U.S. feared that Al-Shabaab, which is, has a relationship with Al-Qaeda, uh, and this is what the U.S. tells us, after if it were to gain power in Somalia, would turn it sort of like how Afghanistan was when the Taliban was in power. And then, you know, make this as a country where they could plot against U.S. interests or even U.S. targets, right? And so Uganda, essentially as Museveni rather, not Uganda, uh, has rented Uganda's army to police Somalia. So he's deployed like 10,000 soldiers there for the last 12 years. And every time the U.S. raises the issue of human rights, he's like, well, I could always withdraw from Somalia, right? <laughs> so that is the, devil, the, uh, the, uh, the, the contract with the devil, sort of to speak. That's the relationship between Museveni uh, and the United States. And sadly, for the people of Somalia, and there's a reason why the conflict in Somalia lasts for 12 years, Museveni has no interest in having that conflict resolved because then he would not have that, uh, uh, the, he, could, he could come back to the U.S., and blackmail the U.S. anymore because there would be nothing over which to blackmail the U.S. and that um, nefarious relationship would have to end. So what does he do? He, and this people can even look it up, his own soldiers sell weapons to the same al-Shabaab <laughs> that they're supposed to be fighting against. And obviously it makes sense if you don't want the conflict to ever end. So I wanted to ask... Um... I know it's hard to sit here and, and, and know what's going to happen next, but to sort of set that up, to sort of look at the future. Um, one, it was noted that uh, Bobby Wine's party did pick up uh, seats in parliament, but it's still something like 56 or 60 seats to 300 uh, yes. of the ruling party. Um, yes. 
you know, so it's a, it's an opposition, but it's a, it's, it's quite small in general. And then um, in addition to that, I would be curious when it comes to the military, I mean, that's also very much um, connected uh, to Museveni and, right. and that party, right? The military is not at all seeing any kind of fracture. Well, that's a very good idea. I'm glad you asked that question, actually. Um, let me tackle the military first part. Mm-hmm. There's um, a, a couple of young officers who have uh, you know, fled the country and a few have been calling me and actually telling me uh, how so many in the military actually are against uh, the dictator and they also actually want to see change, that enough is enough. And these are the people that I've spoken with are people that are in their 30s as well. So they're of Bobby Wine's generation and they relate to him. And Museveni, of course, in 76, belongs to a totally different generation. So yeah, that's a very good question. I never would have even brought it up had you not mentioned it, but yes, uh, I know the military is not cohesive. And in fact, when he deployed massively in Kampala, the capital city, right before the election, people in Kampala were saying that many of the soldiers did not seem to be Ugandans and that they uh, may have been actually been brought from South Sudan. South Sudan is Museveni, like Museveni is a client state of Washington, South Sudan is a client state of Museveni because <laughs> uh, in, the, in the domestic conflict there between the presidents of Bakia and Vice President Yagmacha, Museveni had intervened on South Bakia's side. So South Bakia is basically just returning the favor by helping deploy. So why would you deploy uh, South Sudanese instead of Ugandan soldiers? You would do that because you're not confident about the loyalty of the Ugandan soldiers that they would commit atrocities. So for example, if we had like a civil uprising, uh, Ugandans don't believe that Ugandan soldiers would start shooting en masse and kill hundreds or maybe even thousands of Ugandans. So that answers that part of the question. And in terms of the uh, 60%, uh, the 60 seats or so, that itself is evidence to most Ugandans that Bobby Wine not only won the election, but probably the 60 seats is a massive undercount. If you could win officially 60, given all the intimidation, given the assaults, the brutality, the physical beating of opposition candidates, that number should actually be higher. So now even people that have long experience in Ugandan politics are reading between the lines and they know that, you know, something, uh, is probably going to uh, change sooner rather than uh, later uh, in Uganda. And the interesting thing is that they're now beginning to get information through you, uh, you vote that app. And so far, and theirs is based on the signed declaration forms that are sent in. And they have a tallying center, which is outside the country. And they've gotten polling results from 4,095 out of a total of 34,000. 714 uh, polling stations around the country. And in their tally, Bobby Wine is actually leading 72.7% to Museveni's 24.5%. And that number is actually not shocking if you map it against the population of Uganda, and then you map it against the new people that Bobby Wine was able to sign on uh, as voters. 
well, I, I want to kind of move back domestic, uh, Milton. I think, you know, the Trump administration, we're, uh, well, we're pre-recording this a little bit, so we're near the end of that. I wanted yeah. to get your perspective on the Capitol 6 uh, riots or insurrection or what, however you would define that and just whatever what commentary you think is necessary about that. Well, it's very interesting, but it was inevitable, given that, you know, you really had a, um, a raging dictator, you know, in the White House. He was only confined to the extent that he could not do a lot of the things that uh, he would be able to get away with in a country like Uganda, of course. <laughs> Otherwise, this guy has shown the tendency that he would be happy to deploy the military, uh, and, and he made several attempts, did he not? You know, And many of the comments that he made consistently. So uh, I was not surprised that something like that would really happen. And if you follow what he was saying uh, all along, the buildup to that, it was not that shocking. Uh, calling, uh, he was just a bit desperate, trying every measure, calling up the Secretary of State uh, in, uh, in, uh, in, jo- in, uh, in, in Georgia, uh, that that was that was phenomenal. That was actually a person who, if you imagine, change that to he's not talking to a Secretary of State. Imagine if he had found four reckless or five reckless generals who were in a conversation with him like that. You know what would they be talking about? Of course, they would be talking about occupying the capital uh, and other. Uh, uh, significant monumental buildings in Washington, D.C., and actually launching an actual coup d'etat. And who's to know? I would not be shocked if at some point we learn that he actually had these type of conversations with some generals. Or maybe Michael Flynn uh, was his conduit, having these types of conversations. And you've read bits and pieces here and there to suggest that, yes, <laughs> He might, Michael Finn might have been having that kind of conversation. So uh, the fact that he was not able to launch an actual military coup did not prevent him from trying to do it in a different way. So when he spoke to the Secretary of State, and first of all, obviously the guy is a bit unhinged. Let's say he had managed to succeed in Georgia, you know, alone, right, and change the outcome there. So what? (laughs) That would not have changed the outcome of the election, right? So, but, but then what is the best second thing that he could do as opposed to an outright military coup? Call all these folks that, as he said, the kind of folks that would still follow him, even if he shot somebody on Fifth Avenue, right? They would still vote for him. He said that, remember? So he knows their mindset. He knew exactly what he was doing when he made those statements, particularly when he said, I will be something like, I will be marching with you or behind you, something like that. And then if you combine that with what Giuliani was saying and all the other speakers, it was inevitable that that was going to happen. And then you have the guy intimidating his own vice president. I don't know what he wanted Pence to really do. Telling Pence that you can actually do something which Pence and everybody knows (laughs) he can't do. But it just... Let's just imagine. So now, instead of sending soldiers, he sends these Trump, Trump nuts into the Capitol to physically intimidate the 
people certifying this election. To do what? I don't understand. To throw up the the total, the counts that came in through the state and just add up the ones they wanted to add up and declare him president? I don't get it. But he was clearly trying to launch a coup d'etat and to remain as president of the United States. Is it shocking? It's shocking in the sense that this is happening in the United States. But at the same time, it's not shocking when you see the individual who is president of the United States at this time. But it's obviously very dangerous because even after something this blatant, you still have Republicans coming there. Instead of all of them now saying, we have now realized the danger of really promoting this demagogue and going along with him. And now it came to our very doorsteps trying to, what if those Trump nuts had actually managed to break into the chambers? Would they have started saying, oh, let me identify, they, they weren't holding pictures and said, let me identify who's a Democrat and maybe kill those? You know, think about that. So that could have happened. It didn't happen that, that way, but people did die. But they found out about this later. They knew when they came back to vote on certification later on that it had been a close call. And yet you still have all these Republicans still talking about a stolen election. Wow, that really tells you how dangerous things are in this country. And that this thing that we saw in the Capitol perhaps is not the last of what we'll see. Maybe not in the Capitol itself, but it could be other targets, including the Capitol itself again. And that's where the United States has arrived at. Yeah. What do you think the response should be? Because there's a lot of concern that there will be uh, just a doubling down of uh, war on terror sort of remedies and that that might lead to you know, surveillance and things like that. What yes. do you think as far as like the response uh, goes? That is the danger, really, to be honest with you. Uh, to, to pretend that I know what would be the adequate response, I have no idea. To, I mean, I'll be very frank with you. If you have a guy who now has found the art of holding people that might be a little more level-headed and in, in, in better circumstances, now know that he can easily click uh, people to mobilize against you if you're elected uh, representative, whether in the Senate or in Congress, and you're going to be out, so you have to identify with the most radical elements, they're not going to go away. It's not where, like he was less radical, radical in a crazy sense, not, not progressive radical, right? I'm talking about Trump. At, uh, at the minute that the assault, the insurrection occurred on the Capitol, he had demonstrated how nutty and how reckless he was, really, to any extremes all along. And yet he still got, what, 74 million votes? Just think about that. So I think he's sort of drawn a line that there's a very substantial uh, part of this country that are willing to uh, risk it all. I don't know. On the other hand, we might be overreading it in a way too. There could be many who also uh, 
you know, fundamentally opposed and afraid of how this country is changing. The demographics, right? And those respond to some of those, uh, the dog whistle, and in this case, very explicit, actually, you know, let's take our country back, you know, let's protect our civilization, you know, uh, make America uh, strong, uh, and all that kind of stuff. And they may actually like this as, you know, we still really matter. Somebody's talking to us and saying, you know, we just don't have to surrender to the change that's coming. Uh, can they be like that and not support the kind of assault, the reckless assault of the capital? Maybe that was going over the line uh, for a substantial uh, part of that population. I still don't know. So those are the kind of stories we need to explore further, uh, do more research, more polling into. And I suspect at the end of the day (laughs) that there are more people that think it's worth preserving stability in this country with whatever all the woes that uh, this country has. I don't think a substantial majority, I don't think even close to a majority, are as reckless as as Donald Trump. I think there is a huge, uh, almost perhaps majority, as the votes indicate, who are willing to always scapegoat somebody else for their problems, and that Trump made it okay uh, to to scapegoat others without fear of being um, of uh, being fear of called that you know you're racist, although. Uh, if, if Trump is your representing this for you, I don't see how you cannot be seen uh, as a racist scene that he does not uh, hide that aspect. I think what I'm trying to say is that I think there are millions of people who go along with Trumpism, but to, 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 to a certain extent. And maybe those were not the ones represented in terms of the people that raided and entered the Capitol, because we did see images of some of those, and just based on the ranting, the conversations they were having, it seemed like uh, they would not reflect uh, the majority of even people that opposed progressive politics or even democratic politics in this country. So that gives me a little hope, you know? I don't know if that answers the question. Yeah, well, I think as evidence, Biden did beat Trump in an election. And, yes. You know, right. So uh, what are the top, you know, what are you keeping an eye on with regards to the Biden administration? Let's put Trump in the rear view, uh, you know, hopefully tomorrow. What do you look at? What are you going to be watching closely? I think at this, at this stage, I'm willing to say when it comes to many of the domestic issues, anybody but Trump is an improvement. So I'll give him that. Obviously, he's not progressive. He's, uh, you know, was trying to tight rope, rope around uh, universal health coverage, for example. And then ultimately, of course, repudiated it and said, oh, no, that's not my plan. So, you know, the same thing when we talk about uh, uh, the Green Revolution. So I think the only thing I can say is that it was about time Trump left the White House. I can't say uh, too much for Biden, but I can say this, though, that at least when it comes to foreign policy, 
uh, he's indicated that human rights is going to be a big part of his foreign policy, which of course would rule out supporting a person like the Ugandan dictator, uh, General Museveni. And we have other people like Museveni in other African countries, like in Cameroon, there's also a guy who's been there maybe 40 years actually, uh, basically sustained by the the U.S. and by France um, because it's an oil-rich country. And basically the same thing, ignores, neglects the population, but so long as uh, he appeases his Western benefactor, it's fine. So that's where I could see uh, some substantial change. But in terms of the kind of uh, progressive, more radical type politics that I think a growing part of the U.S., uh, population is actually now sympathetic toward. Of course, you know he's not going to deliver any of that. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that, <laughs> right. if that's a sufficient answer. No, that's great. I mean, it was we had uh, Daniel Bessner on last week, and you know one of the big questions he was asking himself about the the Biden administration, and he's leaning you know one way on this is whether or not Biden is going to be a kind of like sit back and let the apparatus run itself. Um, kind of president or if he's going to be involved. And, uh, you know, it's looking like he's probably going to be passing the reins over to folks like Samantha Power and think yes. people like that. So, yes. uh, you know, there's definitely going to be a lot to to watch over the next, especially early on to see what kind of policy we're going to see developed out of the Biden administration there. Yes. And I might want to add in terms of, uh, you know, people like Samantha Power as well. Uh, people like, uh, you know, Susan Rice and even people like, you uh, the UN ambassador, Linda uh, Thomas Greenfield. Now, these were, of course, people who were in the Obama administration as well. And uh, as uh, people that follow events in Africa closely know, they were, you know, key players in the laissez-faire, let things be attitude toward Museveni, let things be uh, toward, uh, toward Kabila, in the Congo and toward Kagame in, in, in Rwanda. Uh, but I think it's going to be very difficult to reverse the trend of what is happening. Whether the U.S. likes it or not, things are really changed dramatically on the ground mm-hmm. in Africa. The young population really are in the forefront now because they saw what young people could do in the Sudan. Mm-hmm. When you had Omar... Bashir, a dictator, military dictator, been there for 30 years. But when young people said enough is enough, you know, they came out on the streets. Um, even young, young women uh, came out as well. And many people saw that because they were live streaming a lot of the protests on their, on their phones. So we got to see that around the world. And ultimately, even though the guy hit back brutally, I think more than 100 were shot at one point. And they didn't go away. Hmm. After the smoke cleared, they were back on the streets. Ultimately, they got rid of, of, of Bashir. I mean, the military saw the writing on the wall, so they eased them out. And they came into sort of a power sharing arrangement so that the military could use some time frame to ease uh, themselves out of the uh, political equation in, in the Sudan. So people, the young people in Uganda have seen this. Young people in Congo saw that. And that's why 
even if the U.S. had uh, any type of an agenda to reverse back to the old school, uh, it's, it's not going to be possible in Africa. And I think just reading by what's happening, I know there's already at, at least the conversation that I'm hearing that there was um, some informal conversations between the incoming foreign policy team and the folks that are still in the, in the State Department, at least until tomorrow. And the signals were consistent. The incoming folks were also sending the same type of signal to, to Museveni, that enough is enough, and there's going to be a new type of relationship with the United States going forward. So that's why even though some of these names that people were like, you know, very concerned about mm-hmm. from the past are still on the, uh, on the team, the new team, Mm-hmm. Things have also changed dramatically on the ground mm-hmm. to be able to go back. That makes sense to me. Umat, did you have anything uh, else? Or? No, I think that's a good way. We yeah, kind of came full circle. I think that's a perfect way. We'll definitely have to um, to recap this soon as as we see what happens over the next uh, couple of weeks in Uganda. It's always such a pleasure to talk to you, Milton. Uh, oh, signal, I guess you know people definitely check out Black Star News and African History Club. Um, Thank you so much. It's such a it's such a treat to see you. And and don't forget at Alimari on Twitter. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Alimari, yeah, it's, it's a good follow. follow. <laughs> All right, folks, keep up the good work, man. Keep Thank you. Appreciate. It. Stay strong. Thank you. Talk Milton. to you soon. Peace and blessings. All right. Yeah, the great Milton Alimari there. Um, you know, an interesting thing. I mean, I think that's a good point about the Museveni thing. Is like you have a whole bunch of people who were there and plenty happy to look the other way. But things on the ground change, and that's where you might see uh, changes in policy. Yeah. And it also should be noted that since uh, we, we recorded this interview, the European Union and the United States have you know, made pretty bold statements against the house arrests of Mr. President, Wine. can you unite the country? From that, whatever you will. Sorry about that. I, the video of the guy asking Biden to unite the country was playing a little bit over top of you, but uh, oh I think they heard. <laughs> I'm trying to find our little outro, um, uh, so we have that ready. Uh, we're going to play it, but we have one more story we want to talk about before we. Uh, yeah, um, I just wanted to highlight this um, for folks who might not be familiar. There's another strike to show solidarity with at the Hunts Point Produce Market in the Bronx. Uh, which honestly is one of the main reasons that people in New York City uh, are able to enjoy fresh uh, produce at all. Um, it's one of the major distribution hubs for uh, grocery stores across the area. Um, but 1,400 warehouse workers and drivers of the Teamsters Local 202 uh, have been on strike since Saturday. After negotiations over a $1 an hour raise fell apart. $1 an hour for these essential workers who are feeding the largest city in the United States during a pandemic. Um, it also has to be mentioned uh, that Hunts Point um, Market got a $15 million PPP loan, uh, but they're refusing to pay the increase in wages uh, of these workers. Again, $1 an hour. Uh, rather, they offered them a, a measly a 33 cents. Uh, which is a joke. So there has been an ongoing strike uh, since Saturday, 24 hours, uh, which has been pretty incredible. And a lot of different people have showed up. Um, But first, Matt, do you have these uh, um, pieces of sound prepped? 
Yeah, I got the Teamsters uh, talking about the truck being turned back and the AOC. Yeah, so we have the we have the first one here. Um, this I believe was on um, MLK Day, uh, where they ended up actually arresting uh, oh. six. Sorry about that. I had a different one, but I can get that ready too. Yeah, the arrest. Yep, got that. Yeah, it's the first one. Okay. So workers there were, uh, as the police, which I think was almost like a three to one police to protesters, um, they shouted, hands up, don't shoot. Yeah, that's good. Um, I mean, just another reminder of the role of conduct. Here's the cops actually storming them. Unlawfully in the roadway and obstructing vehicular traffic. And you can hear like that. What you hear that megaphone? That's not there for the people there, really. That's there for anybody filming. That the police get their message uh, blaring over the top of it. And it's it's just absolutely disgusting. Another reminder of the police's role in in this country and across the world in general, which is to be uh, the armed guard and the armed force defending the interests of capital. Again, remember, these workers are fighting uh, for an extra dollar an hour during a massive pandemic after uh, the company they work for received a significant PPP loan. Um, (laughs) They're out there trying to fight for just basic decency and respect and fair pay for their work, uh, and the police uh, break that up in the most disgusting fashion. Uh, the second uh, clip I wanted to share with everybody, uh, because you know, on this show, we think it's really important to be uh, critical while also you know supportive as we can of people who we are putting into to power to represent us. And you know, AOC, somebody who we criticize a fair amount on this show, um, talk about some of the. <laughs> the actions that she's taken that we disagree with, particularly um, just some kind of, you know, mistakes, for example, when she was taking pictures with Bolivian fascists uh, in Congress uh, while Evo was fighting for his life against a right-wing fascist coup. Like we will come at AOC for that kind of stuff. But I also think it's important uh, to remember why having somebody like AOC uh, in Congress and also able to articulate uh, these kind of politics is really important because there have been a lot of politicians who have showed up at the at these uh, at this strike because people recognize that this is an important moment. But a lot of politicians aren't going to be talking the way that AOC is going to be talking like in this clip. And I think uh, that is a very good thing. and something we should be supportive of. You are asking for 
right now in our economy. And one of those things that are up that's upside down, sorry, it's cold out. One of those things that's upside down is the fact that a person who is putting who is helping get the food to your table cannot feed their own kids. That's, that's upside down. Yeah, I think that's, that's exactly right. I love connecting that to war. I like connecting that to workers across the country. I think building that kind of consciousness, that's important work. Uh, so I was really happy to see that. And solidarity to, you know, the Teamsters in their, in their fight for a fair wage, man. It's a good thing to see people rising up. Absolutely. Um, I think well, that's, is that all we have to go? No, for? that's it. I was uh, just going to say, you know, uh, for patrons, we'll be jumping on the post game pretty soon. Uh, so look for that link on, on Patreon. Great time to sign up. If you're not already a patron, uh, we'll be taking some discord questions, a little preview of, uh, the 1776, uh, report, which I'm sure will change a lot of hearts and minds. Yeah. It's a big win uh, for patriotism. <laughs> Jim pool, um, in another edition of, uh, how to miss the point. <laughs> Uh, maybe some base Jake Tapper. Base Jake Tapper. Uh, Jake Tapper stumbling into saying something you would not expect Jake Tapper to say. Yeah. Uh, and, and stumbling may not be the uh, right term there, but <laughs> anyways. <laughs> um, well, yeah. Uh, but uh, to play us out, uh, as uh, Bill O'Reilly would put it, um, we have a, uh, you know, the, the Chris Brune uh, country song theme that we have. And it's, um, it, I, I combined it with a video made by Vice uh, where they did a compilation of Trump saying bye-bye. And uh, I don't know if we'll, we'll keep this for very long, but it, it, it thematically it works as an outro. So um, it's very fun. everybody uh, enjoy this. And uh, for uh, patrons, we'll see you probably in uh, 20, 25 minutes uh, uh, back here at YouTube. So check your uh, feeds for that. Uh, so David, uh, we'll see you in a little bit. So I'm going to leave now. Goodbye, everybody. Bye-bye. 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 I'm out of here. Bye. Bye-bye. Okay? Bye-bye. 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 Bye. Thank you very much for coming. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Have a good day. Bye. Bye, everybody, and that's the end, and everyone says, oh, that was fun.